Greetings, universe hoppers, cadets who dream of being captain, and captains who aren't who they seem to be. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. This week, I gathered Elise Cutts, Dr. Peter Gao, and Dr. James T. Keen to talk about more Pluto science, James's scientific illustrations, and the recent super blue blood moon. But really, what I convened this group for was to talk about all of the recent happenings in Star Trek Discovery. It seemed like there'd been at least one huge reveal or major plot twist per episode since the mid-season break, so we had a lot to chew on. Without any further ado, let's activate that spore drive and jump right into the conversation. I am here surrounded by three of my very good friends, three excellent scientists, and three Star Trek experts, or Trexperts. Uh. <laughs> That's saying a lot. Um, so let's just go around in a circle and introduce yourself to the listeners. Um, hey, I'm Elise. You've probably heard me on before. I co-host the show with Mike. I'm an undergrad at Caltech. I study geobiology. Well, geology, but mostly geobiology. <laughs> I'm Peter Gao. I've been in the show before a couple of times. I'm a postdoc at UC Berkeley, and I study chemistry and aerosols in planetary atmospheres. And I'm James Keane. I was on the show once, and I do geophysics and a little bit of scientific illustration. And I'm a postdoc here at Caltech. Well, not just a little bit of scientific illustration, because, James, I heard that you went to the New Horizons team meeting recently that I interviewed Peter about on episode 27 of Strange New Worlds, and you were there in the capacity of a scientific illustrator, right? Yeah. So the, the PI of New Horizons, Alan Stern, invited me into the team to live sketch or illustrate all the science that they are producing, and in particular, their future flyby of... MU-69, which is a small Kuiper Belt object that they're going to fly past on January 1st of next year, 2019, so less than a year from now. Basically, they've been following me sketching Pluto, which I've been sketching because Pluto's really cool, or at least I think it's really cool, and so they wanted to bring me in to sketch it as they were discovering results for MU-69. So this was sort of a test run, going to a science team meeting, sketching mostly Pluto-related research. So the MU-69 flyby, as Peter told me last time, is, what, now 11 months away? So how do you sketch something that hasn't happened yet? What does that mean? You sketch a lot of what-ifs, or what we think it might be. So a lot of my sketches of MU-69, and I haven't done that many because there hasn't been a lot of work done about MU-69, have, have really just been either little tiny blobs, because <laughs> we don't know what it looks like, or inferences based on other small bodies, so things that look like comets that we've flown by or other small moons. Um, MU69 is something like 20 or 30 kilometers across, which is similar to some small irregular satellites, and you sometimes think of them as just sort of giant comets. Comets come from this area of space anyway, so there's reason to think that they might look similar. Mm -hmm. But we've never been to an object like this, so maybe it'll be completely wrong, and in which case it'll be even more fun to draw. <laughs> Any other stories from the New Horizons science team meeting? I don't know, what did you talk about in your 
Hazes. I did hazes. Hazes, um, hazes. Or aerosols and... Aerosols, that's right. You gotta be... Aer- aerosols, hazes, and... So wait, Peter, what's the difference between an aerosol and a haze? Yeah. Well, so aerosols are the all-encompassing term for these uh, particulates in, a, in an atmosphere. And Axio asks, what's a particulate? But I won't answer that. Um, <laughs> haze would be a subset of, of aerosols. And one definition of that, according to Professor Sarah Horst at Johns Hopkins University, is that hazes, and more specifically photochemical hazes, are born of chemistry in the atmosphere. And the particles that they form are more or less involatile and just hang out in the atmosphere until such time they sediment down into the deep atmosphere. And why are they important for Pluto? So Pluto has the uh, honor of having uh, a lot of haze in its atmosphere. In fact, one of the most beautiful Pluto pictures returned by New Horizons is the backlit Pluto, uh, essentially Pluto situated between the spacecraft and the sun. And in that case, the sun is scattering off of the haze particles. And what you see is this very bright ring around the round shadow of Pluto. And the hazes might also be part of the reason why Pluto's atmosphere was a lot colder than we thought it would be. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So what essentially happens is the air molecules uh, or the air on Pluto has some temperature. And that essentially means that the air molecules are vibrating and moving around at a particular speed. And if they bump into the haze particles and they transfer some of their energy into the haze and essentially heats up the haze particles. And in a sense, the haze can then radiate that heat out into space. And that is how the haze could cool Pluto's atmosphere. And it it actually turns out that if you just account for this kind of cooling from the air molecules, it's not enough to reproduce what is actually observed. You actually need a lot of cooling from the haze particles in order to get the temperature structure down to the cold, cold temperatures that we see. It's only about 60 Kelvin. So James, did you sketch any of these hazes? I tried. I actually sketched one of Peter's talk. I actually did bring them, which is not really useful for a podcast. (laughs) Well, we can geek out over them. We'd be like, this is so cool. If I can't have it, I will take a picture of it. Do you do these in these oh color like God. pastel pencils or? So these sketches, which I'm setting very <gasps> gently on the table, because they are loud. For this conference, I I did them all in pencil. I use Prismacolor pencil. I'd welcome a sponsorship. <laughs> um, <laughs> drawing on a heavyweight paper. Yeah. Um, I like having these particular kinds of colored pencils because they let me blend colors mm. very easily. Yeah, that's Amazing. beautiful. Yeah. Usually, I at more regular scientific conferences, I use a lot of pen just because it's faster. But in this case, I was brought on specifically to illustrate things. I thought I'd double down into the art. So it's also on much bigger paper. Your handwriting is like a font. Thank you. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so let's let's just pick this, this haze uh, illustration here because it has to do with Peter's research. And of course, James is the artist behind it. So, Peter, walk us through, for the people listening, what is happening in the figure, and then James, go ahead and interject with your thought process as an artist for how you decided to, to draw this. So, Peter, the science. Okay, so the science, so first of all, what is shown here is a sprinkle of particles 
colored in delightful orange at the top of the atmosphere. And as they trickle down through the atmosphere, they collide with each other and grow to become bigger and bigger objects. And these objects are fluffy, they're full of pores, very low density, so they're called essentially fractal aggregates. Then below that is a, an incredible uh, drawing of the surface of Pluto, including craters and these polygonal features in the this Sputnik Planitia, which is this giant uh, nitrogen glacier that uh, James talked about way back in a, in a previous podcast. So it's, 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 and there's a giant arrow. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know Mike and Peter love their atmospheric chemistry. It's very hard to draw atmospheric chemistry. So this, I just wanted to illustrate the growth of particles, which was a key concept in Peter's talk. I don't really do many sketches of the actual chemistry that's going on, which is an important process, because I can't think of a good way to draw photons hitting methane molecules <laughs> without a, drawing a bunch of sticks and balls. Yeah. It's um, always a problem when we make PowerPoint presentations, right? How, how do I illustrate this on a slide without using all of these just nasty chemical equations, right? Yeah. I, you I haven't found a solution <laughs> to that. So between that difficulty with drawing atmospheres and my own background in geophysics, what is not evident via the podcast is that that is the one sketch of atmosphere and chemistry <laughs> amongst about a dozen sketches of geology because that is much easier to draw. It's way cooler. <laughs> and in, in my opinion. <laughs> I, mean, I would agree. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, which is why also that the, the bottom of that picture of the atmosphere is more detailed <laughs> than the whole atmosphere. <laughs> than the actual atmosphere and the fractal aggregates. These are gorgeous. Did you sketch like the outlines? when you were there and then fill them in or were you able to render this quickly as people were talking? These I would do in real time. Each of these sketches probably took me 30 minutes, some of them up to an hour. And most of the talks of this type of conference are about 30 minutes long. Some are shorter, some are longer. For scientific conferences, those talks are a lot shorter. Those are like 10 minutes, yeah. sometimes even less. That's why you're using pen for those? So I usually, yeah, I do pen and then a lot of the time I go back and color those in after the fact. So for our listeners who can't see these wonderful drawings right now, where can they find them online? So you can find um, most of these sketches on my Twitter, which is at jtuttlekeen. And some of them, actually some that I didn't bring, uh, since I'm now sketching in an official capacity, have started popping up on official New Horizons and NASA websites. So there's a good chance if you see uh, hand-drawn illustration with the New Horizons logo somewhere, it will be by me. And I think that it was between the time we last had you on this podcast and now that one of your illustrations was actually on the cover of Nature Astronomy, right? So oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so um, Nature Astronomy, which is a scientific journal, they were doing a special issue on the end of the Cassini mission, which had just ended, I forget how long ago now. S- Middle September. September. Yeah, everyone was crying. Um, And so one of the editors of that journal asked if I'd be interested in drawing art for the cover. And so I drew a a picture of the spacecraft and Saturn and its rings and some of the moons. I suspect that the reason that they they asked me, other than the editor being interested in in my art, uh, was Cassini probably produced too many beautiful pictures on its own. They either couldn't choose one or they didn't want to offend whoever's they didn't pick. <laughs> if you picked an image of Saturn and it's hexagon or Titan, or there's just too many beautiful things in that system. 
All right. Well, these are all very beautiful. Another beautiful thing that happened this week was the hashtag Super Blue Blood Moon. Uh, Did anybody go out in the wee hours of the morning to see this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Not purposely. I just accidentally woke up. Oh, wow. Like, oh, I'm up. I study the moon. (laughs) Might as well look out the window and then go back to sleep. All right, Peter. I didn't actually check the time, so it was like 1 a.m. and I was getting ready for bed, and I looked outside and saw the moon was still bright, and so I was like, oh, I I would get up early tomorrow morning. (laughs) So I just went to bed. To bed. Yeah. Yeah, Didn't actually see it, but plenty of pictures. Yeah, I woke up at. 4.30 4.30 to photograph it and I took my tripod out and then I realized I didn't have the right lens so I rage texted Mike who has the right lens and Mike got up and ran out and brought me the lens and I thought I took some pictures and it turned out I didn't have the SD card in my camera so I got uh-huh. no pictures but I did see the moon and it was really cool and I also made Mike see the moon so yes that's true yes. <laughs> <laughs> zombie mode Mike saw the super blue blood moon it was pretty super. <laughs> so super because the moon has a slightly eccentric orbit around the Earth. Mm-hmm. And so a super moon is basically when the moon is at what's called perigee, which is its closest approach to the Earth. Mm-hmm. And what about this blue moon? The blue, the blue is basically... It's the second full moon of the month. There's nothing blue about it. There, yeah, and nothing super special, I guess, about that. It's just, you know, kind of rare, I guess, to have two full moons in a month. Because somebody, I guess, decided that the year would be split up into 12 months of... Roughly... 28 to 31 days in length, and that's roughly the cycle of the moon yeah. going around the Earth, so... Yeah, kind of rare to have it twice in one month, but there's nothing super special about that. Enough. Yeah. And then blood. So, what is happening during a blood moon? A uh, lunar eclipse. But the moon doesn't go completely dark. It turns red instead. Yeah. Why is it red? Because in a in a solar eclipse, the sun is basically blacked out by the moon, and you just see sort of the edge of it around. But in a lunar eclipse, it's not like the Earth's shadow makes the moon completely disappear. It just kind of turns it red. What's going on there? Yeah, so the big difference here is the atmosphere of the Earth. And what essentially happening is you are seeing light that has filtered through the Earth's atmosphere hit the moon and be reflective back. One interesting comment I saw on Twitter, and it was very poetic, is that lunar eclipses is essentially the moon seeing sunsets from across the entire world simultaneously. And it has to do with how the atmosphere scatters light. It just so happens that because of the size of typical atmospheric particles, which in this case is nitrogen and oxygen molecules, blue light is scattered more than red light. And when you scatter light, you essentially send these light pads on some random trajectory. And so the light that ends up going through the atmosphere, basically in a straight line, ends up being mostly the red light that's left behind. And so that's why sunsets look red, and that's why most of the light that ends up hitting the moon after filtering through the Earth's atmosphere is red, and that's why the moon was red on Wednesday morning. Well, we speaking didn't... of blood, <laughs> <laughs> okay. can we talk about Lorca's propensity to just smack his face into hard oh objects? My God. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, so let's just leave science behind. <laughs> let's, let's just talk about. 
blood in Star Trek. We're going to do a big Star Trek Discovery roundtable chat here because we're all super big Star Trek fans. And I've prepared a series of interesting questions for us all to talk about today. So let's begin with the Mirror Universe. We just spent a full four episodes there, which was the longest single block of Star Trek episodes ever spent in the Mirror Universe. And I want to know your opinions on how you felt spending so much time in this alternate reality. I loved it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I wish they would have stayed there a bit longer, like, to be honest. Yeah, I, I'm on the fence. I thought that they were going to stay in yeah. for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. I think that they've done a nice job concluding it. Like, mm-hmm. it, they spent an ample amount of time. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah. I, I just have feelings about the way that the whole plot with Lorca was handled and that he went from, like, Captain Lorca to, like, Terran Emperor Lorca a little fast. Yes. Um, and that they could have done some more nuanced character stuff there with him rather than just having him be you know just evil for evil's sake or like strong for the strong sake but it's you know to each their own I guess when it comes to character development I would agree completely with that I think we could have used a lot more time with Lorca but really make the empire <laughs> glorious again really guys really <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek it's Alicor- a sign yeah, of the times it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a boring but it's a boring want, thing to do with a really cool character I did want Lorca to be part of the resistance, part of the the rebellion against the Terran Empire. I thought maybe he could be against the Empire, but not necessarily with the resistance. So just like a completely different sort of third party factor, or like vaguely reluctantly aligned with the resistance, but still bound by that whole Terran upbringing of xenophobia. But what I don't get is how he didn't slip up and like accidentally make a joke about Saru being dinner or something. like. He goes from this society where he's expected to spit on these guys to all of a sudden having a first officer who's a Kelpian and he doesn't like skip a beat at all ever. The question is whether he knew of the Federation. They said those defiant files were encrypted. Super classified, yeah. yeah. Giorgio so. implies that, I mean, she murdered half of her lords so that nobody right. would know about it. With the flying, so, uh, but the flying disc the of flying death. Disc. <laughs> that was pretty interesting. Fidget, the flying fidget spinner. That's what, that's what it oh, was boy. But I can yeah. imagine that Mira Lorca knew about the Federation because he was so close to Giorgio and to Burnham. He was right up there. Like, if it weren't for Giorgio, he would be in charge of the Terran Empire, so I can imagine that he had some intel. And I didn't really get why he was trying to do this coup. Yeah, I didn't get that either. But although the, the about knowledge about disco- about discovery, defiant. I mean, Burnham got even the blacked out files from the Shinjo, so some information like the existence of a mirror universe was at least possible to get to. On the on the early question about why he did the coup, I think based on what we've seen so far, this seems to be just how humans are in this universe. I mean, at least you mentioned their upbringing, right? Yeah. And so I I feel like, considering everything we've seen, they're just raised with the knowledge that if they want to acquire power, they need to overthrow whatever is there already. And that includes stabbing the captain or stabbing the emperor or doing whatever you need to get up there. And that's why I think it would be weird for them to be the resistance because they would not have seen the resistance as... A good thing. I think the thing that I don't like about the mirror universe is that it's so morally reductionist. It's like you're either good and everybody in the Federation is great and humans are all perfect in the Federation except I don't know mud 
and that or you're all bad and everybody's evil and they're just evil because I don't know maybe because they're light sensitive like I don't know I don't I wish they would they would have shown us that like mirrorverse people were people too instead of just like evil plot devices I well know. I think it'll be interesting then to see what George O does because she did sort of hint at a little bit of regular universe humanity yeah which is what I was sort of hoping to see from Lorca they had the opportunity to play off that drama a bit more yeah and also the fact that they revealed that Lorca and Burnham were a thing and that one episode before Lorca dies I feel like there wasn't enough explanation of that it almost felt like they just sort of dropped it in to me although yeah they were like hinting at it with his whole destiny talks and everything before but like I don't know. I also felt that was a little unnecessary, just kind of to give us more creep vibes off of him or something. So, Lorca's big reveal that happened two episodes ago, at the end of episode 12. Yeah. Did that take you by surprise? Not really. No. I read a Trek movie theory post. I talked to Mike (laughs) Wong, who is a prophet. (laughs) Yeah, no. Internet. (laughs) (laughs) well okay so so the other big reveal that happened in the mirror universe episodes was that tyler is actually vogue yes and so i had read the (laughs) trekmovie.com hypothesis on that which came out literally after we were introduced to tyler in episode five and i was super disappointed that i had read that because it didn't i felt like i was cheated out of trying to develop that theory myself Mm -hmm. and so i tried to actively you know, distance myself from reading any of these fan theories online. But I guess this is just the times that we live in, maybe. That, you know, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Facebook, if you follow these Trek news websites, you're just going to encounter these things. But how do you feel about that? Because I felt really cheated, honestly, that it wasn't even an option to not see it because on Twitter, the headline of the article was, is Vogue Tyler or something like this, and there was a comparison picture of the two characters right there, and I was just, I couldn't unsee it. Well, I think if we didn't have the internet, I I think Tyler and Vogue was pretty obvious, and you had one character disappear and another character appear, and I think I would have put that together. I don't think I would have put together the Mirror Universe Lorca until maybe the final jump where they jump into the Mirror Universe, and then I would get suspicious. But there were people who were theorizing that as soon as Lorca appeared as well. So with regards to Lor- the Lorca reveal, I'm a bit sad that I saw speculation about that. Did any, did you ever see speculation on the fortune cookie thing? What about it? Because he's always oh. eating fortune cookies, and we never really found out why. Is it just that he's oh obsessed with destiny? Goodness. Oh, wow. What? That blew my mind. Well, well, because everything in Discovery comes back, right? Except for right. the tardigrade, Mike. Tardigrade <laughs> didn't come back. Let's do more episodes. Just watch. Yeah. Just watch. What about the triple? Oh, yeah, the Tribble. Also, what's in a Mirror Universe fortune cookie? Kelpians. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> or just hail the Empire. I don't know. <laughs> oh, man. Wait, yeah. sorry, but finish your thought on the, on the, on the fortune cookie. Oh, I just sorry. asked if you'd seen anything. I'm not really in the whole... I, I really try and avoid seeing spoilers. I really do. So I, I haven't been reading any of this, like, Trek Talk stuff on the internet. So I was wondering if you'd seen anything on these fortune cookies, but no. No. And I, I would even hesitate to call these things spoilers because they've actually, I think they've done a pretty good job at not having leaks come out. Except we knew they were going to the Mirror Universe from a leak. Thanks, Commander Riker. Um, <laughs> but, like, most of this is, is speculation that turns out to be true. Yeah. Fortune cookies, I don't, I don't know. Fortune cookies. 
Yeah. I like the theory that it plays into his obsession with fate and destiny. Yeah, I think that's the best I can come up with. I wanted it to be like, that's how he sent messages to his people and his resistance, and it was all like super subversive, and they were using this like ancient earth cookie to, <laughs> to spread their messages. Uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but Or maybe they didn't have him in the mirrorverse, and he was just like, oh, these are cool. I like these. I think the, uh, the Volk Tyler thing... I didn't actually pick up on it at all. I was like, okay, Tyler, all right. I thought there was something off about him, but I couldn't connect it to Vogue. It was the theory post which made it clear that the actor who was listed for Vogue doesn't exist. Javit Iqbal doesn't exist, and the only credit this actor has is Vogue. So that basically confirmed for me that something was Yeah. So Mike and I watched these episodes through because I was behind and so the whole time I was sitting I was sitting on my couch watching these I'm just like he's a Klingon spy no he's been brainwashed by the Klingons I was like I was like there's something off that they like uh, Laurel did something to him there's something off and I actually I think the closest I got to figuring it out on my own was like he's got a trigger word like a Russian sleeper agent and then he did have a trigger word but I didn't know exactly what was going to get triggered Okay, before we leave our discussion about the Mirror Universe, I want to know what Mirror Universe you would be studying or doing if you're not studying some kind of science. So I already said last time that I will be researching ways to reverse terraform habitable planets because I guess I'll still be studying atmospheres, but for evil. (laughs) (laughs) Venusiforming? Oh, yes. Venusiforming. Terranforming. Terrorforming. Oh. oh, there it is. There it is. Yeah, there it is. It's coined. It's oh, coined. It's, it's out there. Anti-Genesis device. <laughs> Anti-Genesis well, I mean, really, device. Revelations it, device. It could just be the Genesis device. Yeah. It's the Revelations device. It, is oh. what it is. <laughs> wow. That's good. I think you need to write some fanfic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. EM Cutsy on Archive of Our Own. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. It's not there. You won't find it. <laughs> what if you submitted Star Trek fanfic to the archive? Oh, oh April! Hey, April Fools is coming up. Oh, Let's do it. Um, yeah, what would me or you be doing then? Uh oh, gosh. I mean, if I was still doing science, I guess since you're destroying the atmospheres of things, I'd have to be like spinning planets up until they rip apart or something. <laughs> Although I think I was thinking about this earlier. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't do science, and instead I'll, I'll lean into the evil me, which. I have a beard now, so I'll have to be clean shaven. Um, <laughs> or just the goatee. Just or just the yeah. goatee. Or like an inverse goatee. <laughs> Maybe I'll lean into the art and do all those really awesome badges that they all have. I was going to say, you do, do like propaganda posters. Ooh, stuff. that'd be good. Yeah. Yes. Mirror Universe. Uh, design Giorgio. Giorgio's clothes. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, like she had that cool statue of herself. With like the... Everything is gold and yeah. black. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll do propaganda art for Giorgio. Oh, that's, that sounds like a pretty good gig, actually. I wonder if there's as much stabbing in the art department <laughs> of the ISS Kara. <laughs> art director, position shall be mine. <laughs> I shall become lead artist <laughs> at the price of blood. You know, I think I'd do what every good evil geologist does. And just goes straight into oil. (laughs) 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 Well, not oil. Dilithium, of course. But just, you know, the Empire is very colonial. And like any good colonial power, I feel like instead of just destroying the planets they come across, they just exploit the hell out of them. So just being in, you know, non-sustainable resource acquirement 
from planets and be like, hmm, that pristine planet over there that's got this burgeoning civilization, yeah, it's full of gold. And I hear the art department needs more gold. <laughs> we can't have enough. <laughs> so, you know, just telling people where to go to find the gold and the dilithium and... Yeah, just generally ruining people's lives by taking all of the stuff out of the dirt underneath of them. <laughs> I sincerely hope that I never travel to the Mirror Universe. How about you, Mike? Meet yeah. Mirror you guys. What, what about Mirror Mike? Mirror Mike would be a soulless banker. <laughs> <laughs> no, but what about your, your book career? I think you could join join the art department. I feel like there's a spot for you. Yeah, I could. So long as you don't stab. <laughs> I, I, I could, you know, be the fake news. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could be the be fake the, news. Be the journalism be side. The but... failing New York Times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Terran Times. Sorry, the failing uh, Terran Times. The words to the uh, Giorgio propaganda. Yeah. Making all those chirons going. Yeah, you write the text for the propaganda posters. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Pick the fonts. Yes. <laughs> Evil fonts. Evil fonts. Evil Ariel. <laughs> <laughs> Mike hates Comic Sans so much. If you use Comic Sans, you're disappointing Mike and you don't even know it. Wow, so Mirror Mike loves Comic, Comic Sans. Sans. Let's change topics. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the mycelial network. Mm. All right. So it actually kind of bugged me that... If the mycelial network degrades and dies, life in every single universe would die as well. Yes. And so yeah. that sort of speaks to the importance of panspermia, not just in one universe, but throughout the entire multiverse. And I thought that Star Trek showing all of these many populated worlds in the Milky Way galaxy spoke towards a great frequency for separate emergences of life. And then the they chase. had that TNG episode. Yeah, I was going to say, chase. don't we, don't we yeah. know that they're like the progenitor race to explain why everything looks like a human? <laughs> right. But, you know, then you could just say, well, maybe there were separate emergences of life, but then they seeded things with a specific... Like, I think that's what color. they did say there was. Yeah. yeah they like seeded yeah. some ocean with some like Seed crustaceans that became Klingons and then like cats became Vulcans and apes became... That's what I heard. That's, that's, that's what I, I think I remember. We'll have to rewatch the Maybe chase. I'm completely wrong. <laughs> but, but this mycelial thing just is on a completely different scale. Yeah. It's all of life is connected. It's like if the mycelial network goes down, because I'm connected to that somehow through, I suppose, panspermia, I die. And you die. And everybody dies. Yeah, I thought it was weird. I thought it might be like the structure of the universe will collapse. Like the mycelial network is holding up the multiverse somehow. But yeah, it seems weird. It, they imply it was more of a, like a biological thing. It was a very Doctor Who way of yeah. where <laughs> yeah. this giant thing will happen, which will impact this, but you believe it because it's the Doctor. Yeah, um, because it's Stamets. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I think I don't think they really did the connection very well. I was happy with just a threat to themselves and the ship. Yeah, they couldn't uh, get home. Okay. Yeah. They couldn't get home, exactly. I guess tardigrade would die. Yeah. They could threaten Mike's precious tardigrade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it started to become too much of like the force or some sort yeah. of like, metaphysical thing. Midichlorians. Which it had already started to do a little bit, depending on what Culver was doing in the spore. Yeah, I want to believe that was his, was just Stamets projecting. I already don't like Katras. I really don't like Star Trek dabbling with like Spirituality, like it's a sci-fi show. Come on. Cause... Well, I disagree on this point. Oh my god, we disagreed on. Something. Oh my god, no, I, I, I mean, like it's okay the idea. Them, like... <laughs> I like the idea of contrast, and I like the idea of that actually being Culver, and somehow 
whatever form he takes after he perished in this world, existing on the mycelial plane. Is um, he saying heaven's real? <laughs> well, they, they sort of touched upon that a little bit, right? right when Mirror like Stamets it. and Stamets started talking. The reason death is important in shows is because it's final. Shows that don't respect how scary and unknown death is just get really boring for me. Yeah, but I do like this idea of this cosmic romance between Stamets and Culver. And mm, the, it's I, cute. The idea that Stamets could still communicate with Culver, and actually I thought that Stamets was going to die. Or yeah. I wanted him to actually, quote-unquote, die to save the mycelial network somehow, and then he would end up joining... Culver on this higher dimensional plane, whatever the mycelial network gets is. Gets featured. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, the celestial temple. I'd be okay with it being Culver for real if it wasn't something that like every life form goes to the network after they die. If it was like because there are all these spores on the ship and there are mm-hmm. all these network anomalies, Culver's consciousness got trapped there or something. But I don't like the idea that any Star Trek character ever who ever died, if you just knew how to walk through the network properly, could be accessible to you. But I do like it if it's something like you were saying, the like Stamets would have died to save the network and there's this weird anomalous situation which they could have been together in there instead. Whereas I'm on the exact opposite. I want Colbert to live and I want him to come back somehow the next two episodes or next season. So how do you think Colbert I don't think he should have died in the first place. Well, so okay. stupid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the most tropey I, thing ever. I think we, we all agree on that point. <laughs> this is why I'm you can't see, but I'm wearing my Star Trek Discovery medical com badge in memoriam of Culver. How many times did we see his neck snapped in flashbacks? So many. Or, a little bit excessive. <laughs> yes. Or previously on Discovery. But Peter, how, how would you propose, if you were a writer on Star Trek Discovery, that Dr. Kohler comes back? It's hard to give an answer because the rules of the mycelial network hasn't really been established. So yeah, I feel like so I, I can say whatever I want. I can be like, oh, uh, Stamets goes into the mycelial network and drags Cobra back and put his mind into a body or something. I mean, it seems like... Why they not? could do just that these why days, not? you know? Just upload him to Arium, you know, just over, override her. We're going to get to Arium in a bit. Um, yeah. Or okay. that one green spore. The one green spore. Mm. I wonder what that was about. Yeah. That Tilly's pregnant with Culver. Oh, <laughs> Wait, no, no, please no. That was like the, it's like the, De- the Next Gen episode with uh, oh. Deanna gets pregnant oh. uh, and gives birth to a baby that then grows up really fast. It was the an Enterprise alien. episode where Trip puts his hand. Yeah, right. Trip was, that was like the third episode of Enterprise yeah. or something I watched. And I was just like, yes, yes, they impregnated the Southern boy. <laughs> like, this is great. I, <laughs> I think yeah. I'm with Elise. I think he has to be. He has to be dead because otherwise it makes all those neck snaps that they showed <laughs> so much more angering. And it cheapens what happened. I mean, the other way that they could do it is time travel. Miracleber. Th- yeah, we haven't seen Miracleber. Miracleber is now grieving Mira Stamets. Well, they, we, they never were together, and actually, um, maybe that's why Miracleber was or Mira Stamets was trapped, and he couldn't get out because he didn't because have, he didn't have a Colbert. He didn't have the magical power of gay love to <laughs> escape from the mycelial network or oh, guide yeah. the Discovery home. Wow. Yeah. I like this. Just having love in your heart will help you guide yourself. Does this mean the tardigrade is like a cupid? It's like part of the love network. 
it comes to spread joy and love throughout the universe. My serial network is the love network, and the tardigrade <laughs> is Cupid. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> in our universe, we were blessed by his love. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the Discovery has made it back to the Prime Universe, and for all intents and purposes, Saru is the captain. Do you think that Saru would make a good starship captain? Would you serve under Captain Saru? Yes. Maybe he'd make a good captain, but he doesn't make for good television. Ah, there you! I want to hear why Peter says yes, and then I want to hear why Captain Saru doesn't make good television. Well, I love Captain Saru, or any Saru. I love the character, and I love the actor. I think the way Doug Jones performs and handles Saru is just the best thing. I just think he, he is a constant professional, but you can clearly see where his personality is where you know he might be uh, concerned about his own weakness as captain or being fooled by his desire to leave behind fear I just think he is a very well put together character like he is self-aware I think that's what I like about he is very much self-aware he knows he's afraid of everything but he still tries very hard and the reason why I would like to serve under him as captain is because he knows when we're in danger and can either fight or flight I like Saru a lot. I agree with everything Peter said about Saru being a well-crafted character. I just don't think he's a good captain character. I think he'd be a perfectly functional Starfleet captain. Because most of the time, Starfleet isn't like James T. Kirking across the universe doing, like, getting in shenanigans that make for interesting television. But it's a show. We're not watching, like, the mundane, the mundane not-adventures of an average starship. We're watching Discovery fight a war. And... Saru is just not the kind of, like, risk-taking, exciting character you want to see driving the action in every scene. Like, Saru's fun as an idea, and I liked him in this whole, like, first officer position where he's questioning himself constantly, but the captain of the ship is necessarily a part of so many story-driving moments. Also, just on a more, like, visceral level, it's harder to relate to characters that aren't human, or who look really weird, or have creepy, terrifying fingernails. And yet so many people so many relate people to love Spock. Saru. Well, Spock just had pointy ears. Hey, people hey. fetishize Lord of the Rings. They were fine with that. You're but... starting to sound like a Terran here. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying you make a bad captain. I'd be happy to serve under Saru. I'd be like, this guy's not going to get me killed. Like, Saru would make a great captain for a next-gen style show where they're just kind of like pooting along, going on some missions, you know, just... Being diplomats, this is wartime, and this is like, I want Lorca back. <laughs> I want my sketchy boy back being all sketchy. Well, I, I think I'd be fine with Saru's captain. I agree that Frady Cat Saru, which he was in the pilot in the yeah. first couple episodes, would not be very good. But I think one of the strengths of Saru is we've gotten to see him grow. Yeah, he has. And base the fact that he's biologically determined to detect threats and sort of overcome that fearfulness. I do think he would probably need to tape down the threat ganglia. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't be good in, For crew morale, in yeah. tactical simulations. So or put those away. If you're like on the comms, on the view screen with the Romulans and they can tell you're afraid, that's yeah. probably not good. Or tell that you're sensing death. But I, in the last few episodes, I really liked him in the command role. And he, I think he's taken a fair amount of risk, especially like the way that they approach the his uh, no-win scenario at the yeah. end. And, he, was, um, he was good the last couple of episodes. I just would rather have someone else. But yeah. al- also, even if he is the main, becomes the main captain, 
Michael Burnham is still, in principle, the primary character. character. And so she'll still have the the human part of the show. And I think that would be sufficient. Even though I thought Lorca was a good character, for the most part, I'm kind of happy he's gone because we will actually get even more Michael. And I feel like she's also grown, and I want to see more. Speaking of characters who have grown, I really think that Tilly has grown. (laughs) Love Tilly! Tilly. (laughs) She's so good. She had to take on this role as... Captain Killy and pretend to have all of this pump and circumstance and, and charisma and confidence. And then I think that's really trickled in to her character, not just in her haircut, but <laughs> the way that she really takes takes certain situations by the reins and says, look, I, I think I can heal Stamets. Mm-hmm. I think I, I can use my mycelial knowledge to fix him. And even though she ultimately doesn't really do that but she she shows that conviction and and i really think that maybe one day we will see captain, captain tilly. tilly of the uss discovery uh, but tilly reminds me a lot of janeway in that i think if tilly was a captain she'd be more of a janeway captain because janeway was still a scientist and she still like got the whole joy of exploration like goes up to a star oh my gosh this is like a xb million z class star like i have never seen one of these before this is so exciting whereas picard like strolls by and he's like this is a star we must perform our scientific duty i feel like Tilly, Lorca's just yeah. like screw okay. this <laughs> <We're fine. laughs> plenty of stars in the sky <laughs> screw that space whale <laughs> uh, that fish yeah. uh yeah, I feel like Tilly would be a captain who, like, she, we're starting to see she can be serious and have conviction, but who would still have joy and still be joyful and excited about things in that sort of discoverer way. So, as Elise mentioned, we don't actually know very much about the rest of the bridge crew. The con officer, the ops officer, the tactical officer, Arium. the communication officer, Arium. the angry house, <laughs> android um, no. Dude, it was right, the first right. Android. No, 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 right. Okay, she's okay. Not an android. I, well, yeah, right. She what is she like? Right? Souped because up Siri? Like, really... no, no, she's like a, 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 a bionic woman. Yeah, did she cyborg. Get a, did cyborg. she get into like right. car crash as a child and need to be reconstructed? Like what? Perhaps. Like, we have the technology. Right. So my question to you is: pick one of those characters, or one that I haven't mentioned. Which one of those do you want to know about the most? Reese! <laughs> Bless. I feel like he's just always making the sassiest faces, just very low-key. And I want to know what's going on in that internal monologue. I've done like a small string of tweets about this. I care very deeply. I want to know. So until any of them make a remark that catches my mind, right now I'm actually not that... Sorry, Elise. I'm actually not that into them. So the, the, the kind of okay, okay, sorry, sorry. The kind of remark I'm talking about is like Saru saying, "Well, that's not very clever." That little remark made that episode for me, along with a bunch of other stuff. So right now, you know, the bridge crew is reporting what's happening. I just want them to walk down a hallway with Burnham and you know have a nice conversation where yes. not where they're not just a foil or you know even just two of the bridge crew having lunch together and talking like real people. If and when that happens, I'll start being invested. Right now, they are they are repeating the computer. Well, that's like what we're sort of saying is that we want to hear more from them in that. I don't know. They're like one very accessible way to make the ship feel less small. Yeah. And 
I've just chosen Reese because he's made some good sort of like side eye looks at Lorca that have intrigued my imagination. Yeah, I would have picked the the yeah. two the Khan and uh, Helm's officer was Osikon and Detmer. Yeah, yeah. Um, wow. Um, <laughs> Good. Hey, plus. <laughs> um, we got a little teaser of both of them in the Mirror Universe, yeah. which I liked. They both got to be a little bit badass in the Mirror Universe. But I want to know a bit more. Like, why does Detmer have the cyborg guy? Yeah. And just, I want to see more of them. Really, I'll take all of them. Anyone but Arium, please. Just well, get Arium off the bridge. We need the one line that Arium is not an android. But yeah, I'll take I'll take any of those characters. Like ridiculously handsome comms officer. I'll take more of him. I'll take more of Wait, is this Reese? No, that he's a ridiculously handsome tactical officer. Okay. <laughs> I was gonna fight going to fight you about who is ridiculously handsome no. on that ship. <laughs> really? I'll, I'll but I'll take all of them. All right. So, just a few more questions and then we'll wrap up. What is your favorite reference or touchstone to previous incarnations of Star Trek that we've seen on Discovery so far? There's been a lot, actually. Sarek having a goatee in the Mirrorverse. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. prophet. I just love the fact that this is basically a continuation of In a Mirror Darkly, with the defined reference and everything. I will just say some aspects of the production design and the prop design in particular. Like the phasers, as I look the at the phaser that's on so the desk. Cool, yeah. Their phaser and phaser rifle look perfect has sort of the predecessors to the original series some aspects of the ship design fit in really well between the enterprise era starships and maybe like movie period era enterprise or excelsior there's some things that don't fit at all and are very much more kelvin timeline like having big giant windows in in your bridges and the size of the ship are actually really, really big compared to the original series Constitution class. But there are certain elements that I really like in the production design and prop design for Discovery. Excellent. Okay, now some tough questions. Do you think Star Trek Discovery is living up to tackling all of the social and moral and ethical issues that the Star Treks before it did? I don't... Not yet. I mean, we. Ha I don't think we've reached, like... It's certainly not peak Picard arguing for civil rights. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there are elements in there that are trying to be referential to current day events, like what is acceptable in wartime and do then justify the means. But um, they haven't really been explored in all that much detail. Also on a kind of a meta level for a show that was like criticized as being quote unquote too PC or too politically correct, it's really not that diverse or anything. They have one black female character who is the showrunner, which is cool, but then they have white male captains. But we have a diverse bridge crew that doesn't speak. Uh, we have white Stamus, we have white Tilly. And then they went and killed one of the gay characters. Like, really? Why? Yeah, this is part of the reason why I want to know more about the bridge crew, is because the bridge crew is more diverse than the, most of the cast. Yeah. And yeah, Discovery has had a problem with killing off its diversity between Culver, the original Prime Universe Giorgio, the original Commander Landry. And so that's part of the reason I would like to see more of the bridge crew, and why I'm not terribly upset that Lorca's gone. Yeah. Because it'll let Michael shine, and it'll let some of the other characters Yeah, go. yeah, it's true. In the original shows, they would have whole episodes focused on the allegorical storytelling. But with the serialized form of Discovery, you're going to have to build that 
over multiple episodes. So I don't know. I guess I certainly welcome more social commentary. It's not clear how well they would do that in a serious manner. So I'll I'll wait and see. I think they tried to with the Mirror Universe. Like they're taking us to a not so hypothetical future, given the way that some people are thinking about. Like, is democracy a failed enterprise? Like, are we going towards the Federation future or the Empire future? But I don't think that they showed any moral nuance at all in the Mirror Universe. There were two things that were interesting to me in terms of not quite social commentary, but environmental commentary. The first was the handling of the tardigrade, yeah. which we've established that I love. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we're back to the tardigrade. And we'll be coming back. Right. <laughs> For sure. But the idea that you, know, you, you can't just treat creatures that you don't know very much about in any way that you want. You can't just use them for your own means. You can't assume that they're always hostile. You need to take care to study and understand where somebody else is coming from, even if they don't look anything like you. This tardigrade looks like a, like a beast of burden, and that's how they treat it in the first couple episodes that it is in. But then they slowly realize that this thing is connected to a plane of perhaps consciousness that nobody on Discovery understands, and they need to treat it with respect, and they need to treat its life like they would treat any of the other crew members' lives on the ship. And then the other one was when they discover what Mirror Stamets is doing to the network and how they're using mycelial energy, whatever that may be, to power the ISS Charon, and how they're using that energy irresponsibly because it's not sustainable. To make a tiny star. Apparently it looks like a tiny star. I'm so glad it wasn't. wasn't a tiny star. <laughs> I know. On the science note, stars are big. <laughs> but I thought that was a really great allegory for the times of how we are using our exhaustible resources in a perhaps very irresponsible way and setting ourselves up for perhaps disaster in terms of our own longevity as a first world culture. Okay, we're running out of time. Last two questions. Which is better? <laughs> Peter's oh, cringing. Boy. This is going to be a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Which is better? The first three Kelvin Timeline movies that we have so far were the first 13 Star Trek Discovery episodes that we have so far. Which do you like better? Who dares first? Oh, no. I'll go first. Okay. In terms of enjoyment, I am enjoying Discovery more. And that is because we are able to follow these characters over, I think, a longer period and in more different situations. That's basically it. I mean, I love the Kelvin Timeline movies as well, and I enjoyed those because I find the characters to be entertaining and endearing and, and you know, I, I like to root for them same as I do for Discovery but it's just the face space the Discovery goes through there's more to explore here I think the Kelvin timeline wins out but it's really close it's so um, basically in my mind it comes down to a balance between some of the annoyances I've had with Star Trek Discovery and how terrible Into Darkness was. Yeah, if, if you ignore Into Darkness, I think hands down Kelvin is probably yeah. better. <laughs> the reason I think the, the Kelvin timeline movies went out for me right now is because I love Star Trek Beyond so much. 
it's one of the best Star Trek movies. I, I won't say it's the best, but it's it's a perfect Star Trek movie in my mind. Whereas Into Darkness is trash. Um, <laughs> really bad. Um, it has some good things in it. It has a good soundtrack. But Discovery also has, like, there are some production design things that annoy me, like mentioned bridge windows and some of the designs of the ships. It doesn't quite fit in perfectly with being 10 years before the original series. As Mike said, we're all in this room super Star Trek nerds, so when they call a ship a D7 and it's not a D7, it, it really irks me. But on a, a less technical note, the writing of the initial few episodes, I think, was a little subpar. Discovery's gotten a lot better in terms of its writing. There's still things I think it could be better. And so I think that sort of shakiness compared with the polish of two of three of the Kelvin timeline movies, I think, in my mind, pushes those ahead a little bit. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree about... Because I'm loving Discovery. It's awesome. It's amazing. But I... The Kelvin Timeline movies got me into Star Trek. And I don't know, like, if my mom had been watching Discovery and I had come in and sat down and watched it with her, if it would have got me into Star Trek. Because in a lot of ways, Discovery doesn't feel like Star Trek. Whereas I feel like with the Kelvin Timeline movies, they so elegantly dealt with the fact that they were making an updated movie for a new century, or like a new millennium, actually, really. They balanced that with the legacy of all the Star Trek that happened so well, and I just thought the cast was so good. And I just feel like they explain things so well. Like, there's some complexity in there, like, techno-babble that's complex in there, but it's more palatable than some of the Discovery techno-babble. Like, the mycelial network is, like, sort of, as a premise, really annoying to me. Um, Well, I like that better than Red Matter. Yeah, Red Matter is really annoying. That's just J.J. Abrams. Yeah. his big glowing red thing. <laughs> There's the same thing in Alias. I also just have such a soft spot for that crew. And they really nailed those like character moments. Yeah. Like, the, I the thought dynamics. Bones was perfect. If Quentin Tarantino makes his fourth movie, I want as much Carl Urban as they can Yes, possibly. please. Just If you hear this, more Carl Urban If Quentin everywhere. Tarantino listens to Strange New Worlds. <laughs> hey, Quentin. Hey. Hey, buddy. <laughs> uh, we want more Carl, please. Well, my last question is, what do you want more of in season one of Star Trek Discovery? But you didn't answer the question. Hey, Mike oh, never no. answers the questions. You're going to make me choose. <laughs> ah! <laughs> Mike's dead. Podcast <laughs> over. Stunned. Stunned. Actually, speaking of phasers and such, the uh, the vaporizing effects in Star Trek Discovery are pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, don't change the subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, nobody was vaporized like that in the Kelvin timeline. So I'm... No, I'm not going to use that as my... Uh, All of Vulcan was destroyed. In, into, in, into Darkness, Khan has like a weird... Khan has like a... Which actually, on that on the Into Darkness note, I was realizing today, Giorgio is now Into Darkness Khan. She's the ruthless person from another era or universe that's been brought in, and Starfleet's got to use her for tactics and skills. Do you think they just go like read Art of War or something? Like, they've got all this... We've been killing each other in the prime timeline for most of history. Like, it's all in the computer banks. 
If you just look. They can't think like that. But <laughs> they are enlightened. But Khan is super strong, and Michelle Yeoh can high kick your face. Away. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Michelle Yeoh can, can high kick a dagger out of the air. <laughs> okay, Mike. Kelvin or Discovery? Yeah, See, just... I, I, I asked you guys this because I couldn't really decide myself. Yeah, great. Choose your pain. <laughs> Do you want agonizers oh, or? <laughs> I think, on average, Star Trek Discovery is better. If I wanted to put on one or the other because I was feeling depressed or lonely at night and wanted to watch some Star Trek, I would definitely put on the Kelvin Timeline film. I was going to say, if you were about to say Discovery, I'm like, this is not a good thing to watch when you're feeling depressed or lonely. <laughs> like, well, I, you know, sometimes I do that too. <laughs> like, to feel more cry. alone. <laughs> no, I, re- I really do feel very compelled by the Star Trek Discovery characters. And it's been a really fun ride. One of the things that I love about it is that I have no idea where it's going next or what the characters will do or even turn into. And so that kind of roller coaster experience, watching it week after week with friends like you guys, is really, really fun to me. And I think that factors into it as well. Yeah, this, it's really fun to experience having new Star Trek come out each week. Yeah, and because it's, it's serialized, you feel, I feel like I, I'm looking forward to the next episode even more than, I mean, it's been a long time since Star Trek's been on television, but I didn't ever feel like this, oh my god, I need to see the next episode when, like, Voyager Enterprise was airing. Except mm-hmm. it's like a two-parter or something. Mm-hmm. And even though I said that the Kelvin timelines would win out, I think that it could easily change in the next couple episodes. Or... It depends to me how they handle a couple of things. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about those things then. Okay. What do we want? I really want more bridge crew. And I want some resolution on some of the techno babble. I want Voke to make sense. And I want there to be a realistic ending for Michael. If they have her just, like, waltz off into the sunset and not be incarcerated for the rest of her life, or at least, you know, doing community service on Sundays, like, I'm gonna be a little bit disappointed by Hero's privilege. I don't think Michael Burnham is going back to jail. I think what's more realistic is that Saru's the captain and she's the first officer That's stupid. No. Like that. Friggin' no. Reese has been in line. He's no. waiting for his promotion. And then this usurper, who's literally the only mutineer in Starfleet history, gets his job? Mm-mm. Angry. No, I, I really... So, if, if you go back to the first two episodes, it's like, that punishment... I mean, like, did Michael Burnham actually start the war? I don't think so. The things she are, she's convicted of, half of them are untrue. The yeah. fact that she mutinied against Giorgio is true. The fact that everybody thinks she's responsible for the fact that 8,000 people have died in this war, I think the war was coming. I don't think that they're putting her in jail for the war, though. They put her in jail for mutiny. Yeah, I don't think she's gonna be first officer. I don't think she can have a happy ending, no. except for like self fulfillment. I think she can get a happy ending, especially like if they're desperate for if the war is being lost, as it's been implied. And I guess, yeah. Maybe they need command officers. I mean, did they send Tom Paris back to jail when Voyager got back to Earth? No. <laughs> no we don't know what did Tom Paris even do? And and remember, like, this is the Kelvin timeline, but, like, Kirk goes from nobody, nothing cadet to the captain of the Enterprise. So, like, if that can happen. I don't don't like all of that stuff happening all the time, though. The the question is whether the writers intended the show to continue. Like, they knew... They knew whether the show was going to continue. 
or had a sense of it, or they're like, okay, we're gonna make season one a self-contained story mm -hmm. with you know some semblance of an ending at the end. Clearly, if the former, that none of the characters' journeys are over. Yep. Michael Burnham has been redeeming herself essentially from episode three, and she's slightly going up and up in that. So I can see some mark that she will hit by the end of season one. But I I would also be annoyed if she just becomes first officer. James, you <laughs> last word? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, my hopes for Discovery is that they fold it in into the established timeline a little bit more and do a bit more. They need a bit more of the techno babble to explain away the spore drive, which also has to go away, yeah, obviously, by the end of the show because no one ever uses it again. And I'm curious how they're going to get from this era of darkness and war into the happy, bright original series. Um, I think that there's plenty of room to explore that in coming, hopefully more than two episodes, many seasons probably. Well, yes, they're scripting the second season. And if any of those writers want some science advisors, I know four I will people work who for would free. jump on that. I will work for free. <laughs> so I think on that note... I'll pay you. <laughs> we'll accept pay, payment in tardigrade hugs. But... Yes, tardigrade hugs, fortune cookies, I ganglia. will pay you. <laughs> Restates. Negative salary. <laughs> Call me, please. <laughs> All right, let's actually end this. Are you saying that wasn't a perfect ending? Do you <laughs> That concludes episode 29 of Strange New Worlds. You know, listening back on that episode, I'm surprised at how many things my friends and I didn't see exactly eye to eye on. I sort of assumed that because we all love Star Trek, we'd end up agreeing on everything. But then I discovered that I wanted Michael to earn a second chance at a bridge posting while Elise wanted Michael to go back to jail. And James wanted Culber's death to be permanent and final, while Peter wanted to invent some technobabble that'll bring the dear doctor back to life. But hey, that's okay. Because as the great bird of the galaxy once said, Differences in ideas and attitudes are a delight, part of life's exciting variety, not something to fear. Just like the crew of the Discovery, we're a mixture of imperfect beings with our own visions and desires. And just like the crew of the Discovery, we are stronger because of our diversity. And anyway, there are at least two things I know of that we can all agree on. We'd all appreciate an incoming subspace transmission from the writer's room, and we all can't wait for Sunday. Until next time, see you out there. I feel like Stamets emanates the kind of like concern that professors get about funding. It, it just <laughs> it felt like he was concerned about like funding in the beginning. He's like, I don't want to be doing military stuff, but I've got to be because <laughs> I got to do my science. Yes.
It's like Mike has to put it. Yeah, like Mike has to put it. He's like, I guess I have to work on the spore drive to get funding to study the network. Like, yeah. I guess I have to work on Pluto to get funding to study early Earth. Oh yeah, I took this phaser. I don't know why. <laughs> you speak next. You have to Just put me. the switch on top to turn it on. Oh, do I? Okay. And then you safety. Oh. You have to hit a button. <laughs> Wait, which this button? It's the top one. Oh, there's different settings. Did you just kill Peter? Uh, well, I pointed it at the microphone, so I guess we can't do a podcast. It's scattered <laughs> That hit me in the heart. Oops. Again, it's like the last time I brought toys. You you instantly grab the command com badge, and yeah. this time you instantly grab the phaser. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It somehow Thought appeared over there. I forgot that I did it. I just like subconsciously <laughs> moved <laughs> to my <laughs> left hand side. Mike's just like four years old, truly. Just wants I, I to think. play with the things. You can't bring a toy and expect him not to like. 